Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I want to welcome Miss Lucy. We are gonna have so much fun in this episode. Lucy and I both 
warned each other that we could both talk on and on forever. Um, and so I think today's episode is going to feel like two friends sitting down talking about special education. Lucy's a preschool teacher, and so I invited her to be on the podcast so that we could talk about things from her perspective as a teacher and also from my perspective as a special education advocate and attorney. So I want to tell you a little bit about Lucy. Lucy is a preschool self-contained teacher. She has her bachelor's and her master's degree in early childhood education and special education. She's from Buffalo, New York, and she says, go Bills. But And I'm a Bengals fan, so I don't really care. But she relocated to South Carolina in 2014 to peruse, to pursue her teaching degree. Lucy has been teaching in South Carolina for seven years. She serves students with a wide range of abilities, ages three and four, all of whom have an IEP. She implements a variety of strategies and methodologies to address each child's specific needs. Lucy is very passionate about advocating for her students, inclusion, and augmentative and alternative communication devices. And we talk a lot about each of those topics in today's episode. You can find Lucy over at her blog, The Alternative Way to Pre-K. She's also on Instagram with the same handle. She's got a Facebook group for teachers, and she's got wonderful products on her Teachers Pay Teachers store. Let's hop into today's episode. I think you're going to think it's a lot of fun. Hi, Lucy. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. This Today's podcast might go down as the one with the longest pre-recorded <laughs> in history. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so happy to have you here. I've enjoyed chatting with you offline and can't wait to share our conversation with my listeners. Why don't we get started with you telling me a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, how you do it. Just give us a little background. All right, so my name is Lucy, and I am a special education preschool teacher. I'm going into my eighth year. I've been at the same school in the same program the whole entire time. Um, and really, it's just working with, it's generally the kids' first time in school. We work on a lot of like functional skills, adaptive skills, huge on speech and communication, and just preparing students to get them ready for their school age programs. Um, and within that, I'm also like a very huge advocate for inclusion. So pushing them into Jenna as much as possible, but also um, a really, like we were just talking about pre-recording, like those parent relationships and all that fun stuff and like communicating with parents is a huge part of going into just working with the kids in the classroom. Yeah, and that's so huge in preschool because unless you have an older child in special education, you are um, probably new to it. And as we were saying earlier, there's so many different things to learn, the special education laws and regulations, and then best practice, like what should be happening in the classroom and how to communicate and what all the procedures are and all of those things. And so as a preschool teacher, not only do you have a really hands-on job, but you also have this kind of obligation um, to help parents really get started in special ed, right? Yeah, we definitely, there's a lot of handholding that goes on. Like, like you said, it's their first time, might even be their first time sending their kid to school, let alone sending them to a special education program. But it's, they, they're like typically at a, like a loss. They don't know what's available to them. They don't know what they should be doing. They don't know the laws. They they just need help navigating everything. Um, and you know, sometimes we do get those parents that are there are very knowledgeable on what they need to do, um, which is great. But part of our job is not just working with the children; it's working with their parents and the guardians to help best help guide them through this new process. Um, and that one thing we are like it's always an open line of communication, always, because like they have a million questions and we need to provide those answers. Yeah, and thank goodness there are teachers like you that take that part of your job seriously and also value the input that you get from the parents also, because that's what we preach here um, at Ashley Barlow Company. And I, I say this all the time, it's 
Um, I don't really like to talk about Jack's specific education, um, but nobody, there's one person in our administrative staff in our district that's left from his preschool years and no teachers. Um, and I say very confidently and openly that our preschool transition was um, dreadful and our preschool experience was also less than ideal. Um, and so I have lived the opposite of um, being in Lucy's classroom and, and it makes me really empathize with people that are in um, a less than ideal situation. Yeah, that's usually to like that step from when I, cause I'll have students, my three-year-olds are half day, my four-year-olds are full day. So I can have kids for like one to two, three years, depending on when they come into my classroom. So usually, you know, I've had two to three years to get to know this family and the kids. So we build that relationship and that rapport. And, but then when if I get a kiddo that's in like their four-year-old year, they come halfway through their four-year-old year and we're talking about transitions. It's, it's usually very sensitive subject for all parents too, because like you're entering school age programming and there's, there's different programming there's different like things to like navigate and like our opinions might different, different, like be different. And so just navigating that whole process can be, um, can be tricky, but as long as you keep that open line of communication and that rapport, then you won't have like a negative experience like you had. Like, I know one of your questions was talking about like, what do you do when you butt heads? Like if you have that rapport already, you guys can just have a discussion. Like it's the same thing, like you, you're, you're allowed to disagree on things. Like not everyone likes pineapple on their pizza, but it doesn't mean you're gonna be a jerk about it. <laughs> like you guys can discuss it and like look at the options as to like, why do you want the pineapple on the pizza? Why don't you want the pineapple on the pizza? And then come to an agreement as to why. And I found, now I'm just kind of rambling. I love that though. Like that's what that's in, in negotiation strategy, we call that interest-based negotiation. You didn't yeah. even realize that you just said it, but why? Not the position I like pineapple, but right. question, why do you like pineapple? Because we might be able to get you your interest, yeah. your why, like and maybe usually it's like sweet. Okay, well, how about candy? You know, mm -hmm. or whatever it is. So we're we're going on like a weird tangent, but um, <laughs> that's amazing what you just said thank you well and usually like usually the topic that is like what is the point like what we're like the issue is is usually that social interactions with general education peers that's usually what the parents main concern is and like when we look at these transitions from we have two different perspectives i'm the educator and you're the parent we're we both have valuable input no one's right, no one's wrong. We just have different perspectives. And so usually our perspective as an educator is we're, everything we do is data-driven. It's data, 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 data. So we're going off of our data. Um, and that data can look like test scores and stuff like in assessments, but it also can look like trials in those general education, plate, like we give those opportunities and how successful were they were they needed? What level of support did they need? So then the big issue comes, well, are they going to go to a self-contained classroom or are they going to go to a preschool or um, a general education kindergarten? And like I said, usually the parent's main concern is that social component. So if the team, like the educator side of the team, you know, we're recommending that this child go to a self-contained classroom because they need support, we're not, doesn't, it's a lot of parents like, oh, it's a death sentence. But we're looking at it as, well, no, they're still going to be with their gen ed peers. They're going to get the bulk of their instruction, maybe those two, three hours in that self-contained classroom where they can have higher level support. And then we're going to bring them into with their peers. So we're not just like completely X names um, that, or we might have the opposite. Parents, like they want them in a general educator, in a special education classroom self-contained. And we're like, they need to be in a kindergarten classroom, like they are able to do it. And so if we just talk out like our rationale, both sides rationale, we can generally come to a consensus. And if we don't come to a consensus, we'll go with what the majority of the team kind of like wants. So if it's, you know, we have like the speech therapist and the 
and a parent want this and like that kind of thing, you know, we'll go with what we think is going to be the best fit, but we'll also put in like the IEP and the prior notes, like the team's going to whatever the placement is we choose, we're going to collect data on it for the first six weeks and then meet again and see, hey, was this the right choice or was it not? Do we need to adapt it? Do we need to increase minutes? Do we need to decrease minutes? But like, but yeah, right yeah, yeah, you got yeah, but like, yeah. but they, there's not one size fits all too. Like a lot of kiddos, like they could be successful in both placements, but what's going to be the most successful. And like some of those kids are in that gray area. So it's just kind of like, you got to talk it out. Like again, communication's key. <laughs> like communication is key. You got to talk it out. Communication is key. And you know, so I talk a lot about this in my inclusion workshop. Um, and so that is like a three video series with this really detailed workbook. And what I talk about is, okay, so now we know like in, in mediation or negotiation strategy, we call this bracketing. So we know mm -hmm. the district wants this setting with these number of minutes and the parents want this setting with these number of minutes. And so within kind of, you know, educational placement, we now see where the parents are, where the school is. And what we need to do is we need to understand the why. And then we, what we try to do is we try to see if those two things overlap at all to see if we can find common ground. Mm -hmm. So like maybe we get that really great support, but if the parents want it to be done in a gen ed classroom, we look at that teacher's schedule and we say, can the teacher um, maybe push in some services mm -hmm. into gen ed? Because that teacher, yes, the teacher from the self-contained classroom does sound like she's got great supports, right? So like, we don't just look at things as a, if, if A, then B, or mm -hmm. here's, I say ABC, you say XYZ. We look for that common ground. Mm -hmm. And that's what you just described. You, you know, it's not an absolute yes or an absolute no. There's a lot of gray in the middle. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what we're doing is we're all looking for something that's right for a child. And I right. love that you said, I do this often too, um, and, you know, at some point you roll the dice and you say, okay, this is what we're going to agree on. Um, and if you don't agree, then um, maybe we can try it for a second, take data and I'll come back and, and look to see how, how it works. I love that. But the key to it all is communication, right? Well, and something that more so with the communication and something we talked about prior to reporting was kind of having these like brief discussions prior to the meeting, like what the path that this is going to be. So when the parent sits down at the meeting and you're saying, oh, we think your child go to self-contained. They're not like, what? Like totally caught off guard. Like you have to have those an open line of communication. And like, I always, like, we, I always send home a draft prior to the IEP meeting, but like, and like it is a draft and that placement option, it's not definitive until we all, and I always say that, like it is not definitive until we all come to the table. So say, yes, this is what we're gonna talk about. This can be changed. Like it's not definitive, like it's an open discussion, but also giving them the opportunity to process and they can, uh, granted, we'll talk more in depth about it at that IEP meeting, but give them the, opportunity to question like why this placement and a lot of times too like I'll say if you're concerned about it well pre-COVID go observe that both settings so you can yeah. see both of them in action so when we do come to the table you do have a better idea of how those programs operate I'll even give that or just even or contact that teacher so giving them time to look at what the options are even prior to the meeting instead of just coming to the meeting and be like this is where your kids going. This is where we want them to go, and then have them be totally blindsided. Right, and you know, I will say to to parents, kind of like a a, a bad word in special education is due process. But the purpose yes. of due process is really to to put an end to impasse. You know, mm -hmm. if you have those conversations, and the and the conversations unfortunately still turn sideways, um, there is an answer, and the answer mm -hmm. can be 
determined by an administrative law judge. And so, you know, you don't have to look at due process as something really nasty and really stressful and expensive. Um, sometimes you have to look at it as, okay, guess what? There is an answer. And I say all the time in our preschool transition, I wish I had filed for due process because I, I just wish that I had an answer. I had nine mm -hmm. months of really, really, really hard discussions. And it taught me a lot, <laughs> you know, it, it really, it really geared my career in a different direction. Um, but um, at some point, you know, for my own health, I wish I had just said, okay, you know what, let's let a judge decide. Um, so yeah, so I think that's really um, an important vibe for parents to hear from a teacher's perspective. Let's backtrack a little bit because I want to know kind of about the vibe of your classroom. You know, you posted um, on Instagram recently a, a picture of your lovely new paint color. Um, and so, it's not that bad. It's growing on me. It's growing on me. Okay, good, good. Um, but tell us, you know, kind of what's your classroom look like? You are going to miss Lucy's classroom. What's the vibe in there? Um, everything is very uh, strategic and like functional. Like someone might just see like a piece of furniture, but like it is in that spot for a specific reason. Like everything has a purpose in our classroom. Um, it's very, everything's just very accessible for the kids, but also we try and keep it as minimal as possible. So it's not overstimulating. Um, and like, really, it's just, we have, it, there's a ton of structure because my students thrive on structure and thrive on routine. There's a ton of schedules and like we do the same thing all the time but also like we're just like super goofy and like like I don't know we just like have fun like we do like really weird stuff like if anyone like if one of my friends were to come in to observe my classroom like what the heck are you doing because we're just like super silly but like they're little kids like you have to be and so we keep everything super fun and engaging like I don't want the kids to it's, it's fun. Like they're, they're three and four years old. So it's not like we're sitting down and doing worksheets and strategic, like that's not how they're going to a learn the best. And that's just like, not my style of teaching. Like I rather just learn through experiencing things. So, yeah. and it, we have a good balance between structured, but also just like lightheartedness. And fun. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's something that I love. I was scrolling through um, your Instagram feed not too long ago and um, something that I love is that you really teach the kids how to play, which then teaches them how to learn. So um, Kentucky's regulations, my son went to school in Kentucky, and our regulations have very, very strong focus on play-based preschool. Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect South Carolina's do too, am I right? Yeah, it's very, I mean, again, they're young. <laughs> so like a lot of our students need to ta be taught like what is a functional way to play or how to like engage with other peers but so much of those skills they learn through experiencing them playing so like i hear it all the time like oh you just teach kids how to play well no we're not just teaching them how to play because okay we may be playing with blocks but you're working on so many other skills communication solar children interaction pre-academic skills math literacy all from stacking two blocks you can work right. on all those skills and that's an appropriate like thing to be working with those kids because at that age level they're playing they learn through play so but like, what, I loved, have... what I loved and I think parents would love if their um, schools do it too so if you um, hop over to Lucy's Instagram page which we'll link in the show notes um, you'll see this like in your centers, Lucy, you have like a clipboard that says how to play with the block, yeah. how to play with the Legos. And I so wish that somebody had taught me that with Jack because he didn't know how to do those things. Mm -hmm. and, and he didn't copy his peers when they were doing them. So consequently kids would build blocks and he'd be like, oh, this will be fun. I'm gonna knock it over. Mm -hmm. um, and so like actually functionally learning how to play is great. Play-based preschool drove me bonkers because there wasn't any structure. Like <laughs> a great example of the blending of structure and play because yes. his was just this like free-for-all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't really like to curse that often, but I cursed on here the last um, <laughs> week. So it was a shit show. Now, now we just 
I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of those classrooms at these schools. And like he didn't get anything and it was very dysregulating to him. So I love that you do that. And I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah, you have to have a balance of both. Like, yeah, we're still playing, but it's like structured play. And like the whole purpose of those two are A, to provide a visual. So like, yes, myself or my assistant can work with them and reference it on their own. But also like, say we have 14 kids at once, which that's never happened, but um, if we like when there are larger numbers in the classroom, we can't be with every kid at one time. So they have something to independently reference. Or if we like, we see little Johnny over there, he's not, he's kind of just like sitting, staring at the blocks. He doesn't know what to do. We can at least tell him like, I'll be with you in a second, reference the sheet that, and you can look at that to help you then facilitate that. But like, yeah, center time is like huge in our classroom. That's like our big, um, Thing. And then we also like will inco- incorporate whatever we did one-on-one into those little rotation or little centers. And they love it because they think yeah. they're just playing. They don't think they're learning. <laughs> they think- and they're learning independence in addition yes. to that. And it's definitely something that parents can do at home. I have another question about play. Yes. Um, and that is like coming from the parent's perspective. Um, <laughs> we're tired. You're tired. I know you're tired. We just talked about okay. Um, and so the question is, how do you as an adult, as a human, keep the energy and the desire to, to make it fun, to stay goofy? Like what, where do you draw that energy from and what tips can you give parents to do the same? Um, honestly, like just from the kids, cause I, they're so like, to me, they're just like so funny and they're so fun like to play with, but yeah, there's times where I'm just like, oh my God, I'm going to pull my hair out. Like, I'll be like, I'm going to the bathroom, but like, really, I just need to get the heck out of there. Um, But I think just like taking those little breaks for yourself, um, but just like keep it simple. Don't overthink it. Like, you know, a lot of the times too, my like parents will be like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm like, you're overthinking it. You're totally overthinking it. Just like go in naturally and let it be an organic flow. And like, you can schedule if like, so like if you're like, you're feeling burned out, like schedule in those times, like, Hey, at 12 o'clock, I'm going to sit down and play with my kid and we're going to do that. Um, so you're, it's very strategic in doing it. So you can anticipate it coming. So you can drink your coffee or take the nap beforehand. So then you're energized. Right. To do it at that specific time. That's honestly, I, I definitely did that. Um, I don't like pretend play. And I remember a therapist told me one time to make it like a Disney movie. So like you make it for the kids, but you also do stuff to entertain yourself. So like you might, oh, yeah. yeah, like, it's you know, 100%, I would, you, you have to keep yourself entertained because you can only like do the same thing over and over so many times. Yeah. Yeah. So like I would have, and that's it. Like they need the repetition, but you get so bored with like magnetiles or whatever. So yeah. You know, like this person was like doing, this was a speech therapist that was doing like a conversation between two farm animals. And, you know, one of them said something off color or something. And it like did make me entertained. I still never got good at that, but I loved that lesson for me of like, make it like a Disney movie, put some humor in there for parents. You know, something else that I do is, and I think I'm certain that you do this too, is like, I find a lot. Uh, I find it way easier when I'm doing something that I like. And so um, like, I'm a really good parent at the pool because I still like to do cannonballs at the pool and I like to go off the boards and I like to be silly and like get pushed over and um, play underwater, like get the diving sticks off the bottom, but like not everybody else likes that. So if it's, whether it's tennis or it is pretend play or it's cooking, there's all kinds of opportunity for you to kind of get energy from some other source instead of, you know. Right, especially like at home, like especially as a parent, like find those shared interests and then you guys can like build off of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that is um, a big key to it. And music helps me too, because like, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing, like you can't listen to Veggie Tales and not dance. Gosh, yes, yeah. <laughs> there is, there is, oh, what's the other guy that we listen to in our classroom all the time? Lori uh, Bergner, she's fun. Yes, yeah, she's amazing. Um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna drive me. I'll think of it. I can't remember it, but okay, there's you tell us and we'll put it in the show there's notes. Just, there's a lot of silly 
silly people out there that do really catchy songs and I'll be like laying in bed at two o'clock in the morning and I'm just like why am I singing this song (laughs) (laughs) yes we've all been there so you know while we're talking kind of about classroom technicalities let's talk about differentiation because I think a lot of parents are really overwhelmed to get started in special education advocacy because they don't know how it works They don't know um, how specially designed instruction works. That's the instruction that should be um, geared towards the child's goals. And they don't know how general education curriculum or the curriculum that's kind of whole group curriculum gets differentiated so that their child can access it equitably. So like, give us kind of the nuts and bolts of how your your self-contained Um, classroom works in the preschool setting? So a lot of it has to come from like an understanding of what the child's skill sets are and what their needs are. Like, again, I've been doing this for seven years, so it kind of just like comes naturally to me. Um, But it's so much of it is just knowing what the kids' goals are, what their needs are, and what they're working towards. And then how can we adapt that to whatever we're doing? So like, for instance, like if we're doing a story, my kids are always on totally different levels. They all have all different skill sets for reading a story. I don't know, say about apples, like, and we're, we're just looking at the book. We haven't read it yet. I'll like do like a picture walk, I guess. I would maybe ask one kid to point to the apple. I would, another kid who I would just ask you just to attend the book, look at the book. I could ask another kid, what do you think is going to happen in this story? So just gauging you have to know, I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't know what their skill sets were. So just kind of getting creative and looking at what they could pull from that, like at their own, with their own skill set. Um, and just kind of like, I know it's, it just kind of comes naturally to me when it comes to more like concrete things, like when you're coming more to academics, it's the same kind of thing. Like if I, if we're looking at the letter A, and I want you to identify, the main purpose is to identify the letter A. I might have so-and-so identify it verbally. You might identify it receptively. You may not even be on, like know what we're doing with, you might not even be differentiating between numbers and letters. Again, asking this child just to attend to the letter A, I might have another kid trace it with their finger. I have, might have another kid say it. I might have another kid tell me on their talker. Um, it's just, you gotta, you gotta know what their skill set is essentially. Yeah. And so first step A, know the child and then step B, meet them where they are and try to up the ante a little bit so that they're making progress. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was a way more, uh, you said that way better. (laughs) I summarized, I summarized. I, yeah, I usually use more words to explain (laughs) Um, that's my style. But you know, something that I talk about a lot, and it was like this huge epiphany when an educator told me this is part of differentiation is really, and you just explained this, is really looking at the primary learning goal. So we're looking for A. And so everybody can show their understanding of A or their progress toward understanding what A is differently. Um, and some of us need it different, need it in a different way, right? So like mm-hmm. one kid might be able to find an A and a C of other letters, like in a word right. search kind of a thing, but a child with a um, with visual perception deficits mm-hmm. would never be able to do that. Well, it needs to work towards that. Let's never say never. Um, and so we need to, you know, make a less busy paper for that child mm-hmm. because the goal isn't visual perception, it is A. <laughs> Right. Yes, exactly. And then that's like, when we do part of our, like when we do our rotations, we have like three stations and there were one rotations with me. And that's when they get that one-on-one time. Like that's where I do a lot of differentiations because they're all on different skill levels. They're all working on different skill sets. So like I might do an activity with Johnny, but like completely different activity with Emily, but it's, the same concept we're still working on the same skill but it's just the way it's presented to them is totally different because like Johnny might be able to hand it on a piece handle that concept on a piece of paper and like do written work that's great but Emily has got to have like manipulatives and be able to like 
move things herself and kind of like put things in and that sort of thing. So it's just, again, knowing your student. <laughs> and their, pro, their learning profile too. It might right. be that Emily doesn't really, it's really non-preferred to hold that paper. That's a huge thing too. Yeah. Like, and like, I have students that, you know, they don't, they, you want, they don't want to sit in a chair. They, they we're not going to sit in a chair today. And I'm like, that's fine. If you don't want to sit in a chair, like it's again, just knowing what they need. I need some students that they, they have, if we're doing one on word work, they have to be moving at all times. So I'm not going to give them a pen and paper worksheet, like whatever we're going to do work. If we're say we're doing, which we don't really work on syllables or anything, because, but, um, say we were doing that, I would like have them jump them out instead of them like doing it on paper. It's just, you gotta, gotta get creative and work with what that child is good at doing or what is preferred for them. Cause, and then the, the nature of teaching, like sometimes they just have to do non-preferred, but I'll always stick that non-preferred in between two preferreds because I get it. You don't want to do it. There's lots of things I don't want to do, but if it's, if the antecedent and the app, whatever we're doing after is preferred, it makes the blow of that non-preferred not as bad for them, like not as unenjoyable. Because you might get a reward or something like that. Yeah, I, I like for you to explain that um, and for teachers to explain that in meetings often because, you know, it's so many parents, particularly of younger kids, like mm -hmm. um, the kids that you teach, get so nervous about sending their baby there. And how do I know that they're going to be um, taken care of and that they're going to get the instruction the way that they need it and at the level that they need it and that kind of thing. And that's kind of the dance and the beauty of education. And, you know, in my experience, um, most teachers get that right most of the time. Um, and then, you know, and I don't know how you feel about this, so I'll just, I'll say it and then you can comment back. Um, I think there's also a really important skill in learning how to function in a group. So learning how to be bored, learning how to praise other people when they are doing something differently than you, learning that just being a student and learning that other students learn differently. Um, so kind of the, the skill of, Jack still needs to work on this, the skill of being bored is also an important skill. Do you agree? Yes. Oh yeah. And like a lot of the times too, um, a lot of our students, if they have been in like private therapy prior to being in classroom, like their, any of their therapies are typically one-on-one. -on -one, so they become very prompt dependent. And so they don't know how to play on their own or it's not preferred to play on their own because that isn't how they have been taught. And like, you got to learn to just be bored by yourself with the car. So like, sometimes that's when like, when we're doing like planned ignoring, we're like, I know little Bobby over here, like he's so prompt dependent. I know he knows how to play. He wants me to play with him. So like I get nervous when an admin walks and I'm like, I'm planned ignoring and not just ignoring him. He's sitting over there doing what he's supposed to do. But like, sure enough, after some time of ignoring him, he'll start to play by himself because he like you, he can do it. It's just, right. they become so prompt dependent and they're used to constantly having someone entertaining them. They need to learn how to, like you said, be bored. And I feel like too, not, I mean, when I was a kid, you just went out and played and everything. And like, now everyone has iPads and all that stuff. So they're constantly having that input. And so they don't know how to like, just not have input. <laughs> Which is dysregulating in and of itself. And, yes. and I agree with you entirely. And that's definitely something that we work on um, and something that I, that I have to reassure parents of so, so often because I'm, and I'm glad that you talked about um, students that are, that come from settings where they get a lot of one-on-one -on -one support. In our case, it wasn't from um, a therapy center or ABA therapy or something like that. It's because my kids have nannies. And so yeah. they, you know, somebody's job to do all the puzzles with them and that sort of thing. And we knew it, but, you know, they just became dependent little um, life suckers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's literally just becomes like a waiting game. Like I've had like, say with like doing a puzzle with a kid, they'll just keep looking at me and they'll keep like saying, they'll keep pointing to help, 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 help. And I'll say, I know you want help. You can do it on your own. And sometimes they'll do it immediately. Sometimes we'll sit there for 15 minutes and we'll just stare at each other. But like, and then eventually they'll put it, I'm like, see, you got it. And then they're like, okay, that's okay. 
Um, a battle of the wills. Oh, yes. They will test you. And that's like, it's so funny with them because like, you know what kids are going to cave faster than others. And you get some kids that like, they will wait you out like no other. And I'm like, yes, yeah. I know you can do this. Oh, Jack Barlow. You can't let them read that on your face. You just got to like, right. and that was the beauty of having masks because like so many times, like I would be smiling or like laughing and they wouldn't know because I had a mask on. Like so many times I catch myself having to turn my head because I'm just like. Oh yeah. Too. The mask was a secret weapon. That's true. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is funny. So you just alluded to something that I know is a huge passion of yours and that is talkers. Um, yes. Augmentative alternative communication devices, whatever we want to call them. Um, I know that you um, really advocate a lot for the use of a talker for some kind of communication device. Um, and before we even kind of dive into this question, I have a lot of clients that say, because I oftentimes recommend one also or, or think should we explore it, and parents say, well, my child communicates, you know, they might communicate. Yeah, number one thing they say. <laughs> Um, and, but there still are lots of reasons why talkers might be helpful. And by the way, I was one of those parents and somebody talked me into it. And now I have a kid that literally won't shut up. So, you know, why don't you kind of tell everybody what an AAC is and then how you utilize them in your classroom? So AAC, alternative augmented communication, there's all different forms of it. There's low tech, there's high tech. Um, it can come in the form of like what, will be like a communication book. It can come in like switches, which are like buttons. It can come in like eye gaze devices. There's hundreds and thousands of different things out there, depending on what that child needs. We use those devices for one of two purposes. One, it's because that is that child's sole means of communication. That's how they're going to communicate. Um, we want to obviously, uh, we, when we talk about language, we say expressive and receptive. So expressive is that um, that verbal output and receptive would be the, them like pointing. Obviously our end goal is always to be fluent expressively and have that expressive language. And that's what we always work for. But you know, some kids, we may not foresee that anytime soon. So we really wanna get them on those devices. So that's gonna be their main form of communication. Other times it's to bridge the gap. So you like have a kid that you're already talking, it, the device will help them expand their language. Also, it will help with articulation. So many times that parents are saying, well, my kid talks. Well, you understand them, but nobody else might understand them. And that's where like, it kind of enables them because they might be like saying gibberish, like blah, 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 blah. But they are like, oh, you want chicken nuggets? Well, how is someone else supposed to know that? And so you want them to be able to communicate and generalize that skill across all settings. So with the help of the communication device, it can help, it helps promote that language and it helps with proper articulation because a lot of using these devices is model, 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 model. So you're modeling that language. Um, so, and that's, we kind of, in my classroom, it kind of, we don't have both, it always depends. Um, but I, yeah, like I get kids all the time, my parents be like, he's talking, he doesn't need a device. I'm like, well, it would help to promote that language. And then by the end of the year, the child will zip it. And they're like, why did you do this to me? <laughs> but like a lot of it, it's, it's hard to get parents on board for these devices. It's hard. Like I even know some teachers that like aren't on board with it. Yeah, a lot. Um, and I think too, it's, you know, some people will like say like, oh, well, he signs. But signing isn't a generalization skill. So like, for instance, if you have a communication book, like we, a lot of, we do a lot of flip book or flipping talks. Um, if a child has, is going to McDonald's and they're gonna sign hamburger, well, that person has no idea what you're saying hamburger. They don't speak ASL. But if you have a book that has a device with a picture and the word, it's more universal. So the purpose of them is mainly to generalize that skills and to make it more functional across more settings so they can be more inclusive so they can have those conversations with other people outside their little bubble. Yeah. Um, and that that's a really beautiful description. I love that description. 
So we, um, the reason why I wanted to talk her was because Jack was missing, um, we ended up calling them sticky words, but he was missing prepositions and articles and like the the little words that make language actual language. So he could say, I want chocolate milk, but he couldn't, well, that is a sentence, but he couldn't say like, I want chocolate milk and it's over there or, Mm -hmm. you know, and he couldn't like put anything into concept and he was in those more multiple word utterances. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so what we, and I thought reading would do it. So I held off on a talker because I thought once he sees, he has to read uh mm-hmm. and the and two enough, it'll start to happen, but it didn't. I, my intuition was wrong on that. And I think it's because he couldn't get enough repetition with reading. That's what, that's what all devices are repetition. And that's what I tell every parent when we do a training, I'm like, you are going to say these words till you're blue in the face and you like are going to hate it. But guess what? That's what your kid needs. Like you yeah. can repeat the same thing over and over and over and over again. But that exposure and that repetition, maybe on the 800th time, it's going to click. And then that's, yeah, that's why we have, that's bridging the gap and promoting that language. Well, and what's so interesting is just yesterday, um, he, so he's 11. He started with a talker probably when he was seven or eight. Um, Mm -hmm. And we don't use it that often. He still does use it in speech for therapeutic purposes. Um, But I was getting out of the bathtub and he said, mom, what are you doing? And I said, what am I doing? And he like paused and asked me for help with the prepositions because that sentence has a lot like I am getting out of the bathtub. Um, And so he paused and asked me for help and I would prompt him word by word. Mm-hmm. And then I said, you're right, Jack, I am getting out of the bathtub. And then he did it. And so like him slowing down and wanting those words in the right order with the prepositional phrases was like, it was almost like you could see the sentence diagram in his brain. It was right. so cool. And it was really important that you said about the slowing down too, cause I'll get kiddos that like, they just, that helps them slow down to form those proper sentences. Cause like their mind's going a mile a minute and they're trying to shoot out all these words, but like they're, it's just like verbal diarrhea, like yeah. slow down. And when you have that device, it gives them something concrete and like tangible to help them slow down and like think out the sentence and not just like spit all out once too. Yeah. You know, so this is really interesting. And I, I made this connection way after my doctor said it, but um, and then we'll move on because <laughs> other people might not be guessing about this like we did. Okay. Um, I, so I was like having to chart a lot of like negative health stuff, like what my weight was, that's always negative. Um, you know, like my weight and where I had aches and pains, I have some autoimmunity stuff. Um, so like, you know, all the negative stuff. And I said to my doctor, I just feel like it's a lot of negative energy. And this is an integrative doctor that really understands kind of the mind body connection. And she explained to me that what she ultimately had me do was write three things for which I was grateful every day or three good things that happened every day. And I'm really positive. So that's no problem at all. But she said, basically, if you take um, something, even something joyful and move it from like the, the, here's where I find joy part of your brain and you write it, you are activating it in a different way. And so your brain is saying, oh, we're taking joy and now we're going to do something with joy. We're going to manipulate it, which then helps you express that joy better or gratitude or whatever the positive emotion is. And similarly, if you take um, something that is negative, like write down your worries, you're moving it from the worry center to the the writing center. Um, And that has a functional effect. And that is something that's been studied. And it really later got me thinking about a talker and how like we communicate with our brain and our mouth and our motor skills. And there's so much that's happening when we're communicating, obviously the language centers. Um, But if we then also include our hands, like we do with ASL and like we do with a, a talker, we are moving the language, we're activating something else, which will eventually start to ingrain it into our motor planning systems, right? right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 
I think it's super fascinating. One thing before we hop over um, to back over to advocacy, because I have a couple of more questions about that. And so that is pragmatics. You know, I really preach pragmatics. I think it's super important in preschool. So how do you um, help kids do self-advocacy skills and pragmatic speech with communication devices? I mean, honestly, just through modeling and just constant exposure, the same way we would do any form of language. It's just constant repetition, modeling. Like I said, you'll do it till you're blue in the face, but they just in giving them the opportunities to practice those pragmatic skills. Um, I, it all kind of like goes hand in hand and also doing it like in natural scenarios too. Like if like a kid is hurt, we can teach them like you need to ask for help or I need to ask for something. So using those natural experiences kind of, and just constant modeling, constant, yeah. <laughs> constant, constant, constant. And if they learn it as it happens, then it becomes so much more functional. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so then the next time, hopefully that they'll be able to apply at least one or two of those words that we had modeled kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Except if they're hurt and they can't find their talker. And the, I remember right. yeah. it happened to Jack so much. He would want to say something. He'd be like, iPad. <laughs> yeah, at least in our classroom, like we just like totally bombard them with language. So like, I think I mentioned majority of my students, um, sometimes we have kids on switches, sometimes they're on eye gaze devices, but majority of my students have like low tech flip and talk books. Yeah. And so it's essentially, it has a core board with frame. So we have them, we, they have their own personal device but then we have them throughout the entire classroom. So they're in every center, they're in the bathroom, they're in the calm down corner, they're with the playground. They're like, they're, they're everywhere so that they never have to like worry about like, oh, you don't have your device with you uh, like next to the second. All right, I'm gonna grab this board right here and we're gonna use this one right here. So right. it's always, we, we're like a lot of proactive instead of reactive in our classroom. And I also know that you attach them to yourself. You have them on your badge. <laughs> oh yeah, we have them everywhere. <laughs> They're literally we just like well we're in the hallway too. Like I just whip it out because we don't always have it. Um, and we had one too made for our playground too because we were having kids bringing them out to the playground. They just got like totally destroyed. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and it's interesting too because like especially at the beginning of the year. Now we've had this. I think we've had it like three years. The um like we share the playground with um, kindergarten and the general education preschool or classroom. So like they'll come out and they'll be super interested in that. They're like, what's this? And it's like a really good segue to have them in, like be inclusive and tr like, you know, like not everyone can talk verbally. Some kids have to do it. So it's a good learning tool, not just for our class, but for others. And then my kids benefit because then they can socialize and communicate that way too. Yeah, it's so that is such a great undercurrent to any kind of device that somebody needs in order to make learning and life equitable to them. So let's hop over because that kind of is a nice segue back over to advocacy. Um, and I know it's a passion of yours, but why really is um, advocating for your students and teaching their parents how to advocate? Why is that such a passion for you? I think, well, it's two things. It was it's like, it's basically the way I was raised, essentially. My mom um, was a social worker. She was literally an advocate. <laughs> she worked for CASA, court appointed special advocates. So she was an advocate herself. We had foster children in and out of our home all the time. So she is a huge part of that. Um, but also she taught me to be my own self-advocate because I was diagnosed with OCD and anxiety. Well, my parents knew from day one, like something was up. Um, I was, I was a little temperamental as a child, <laughs> um, but I think I got officially diagnosed, like going into third, fourth grade. I want to say third grade. Um, I was in fourth grade when I had my first ulcer. So you and I are wired similarly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, they knew something was up. Like it was like, I was, having to them, they thought they were just tantrums, but they were panic attacks yeah. all the time about like totally irrational things. Um, so they knew something was up to begin with, but um, I had to learn basically and my mom instilled it in me to be my own advocate because, you know, some, it, it happened a lot more in high school than it did in elementary school, but like 
a lot of teachers, unfortunately, would just like, oh, she's looking for attention or, oh, she's trying to get out of work. Like if I said I needed to leave the room because I was going to have a panic attack, they were like, she just doesn't want to do it. It's escape. I'm like, it's escape from this classroom because I'm going to have a panic attack. It's not escape from the work. And so I, a lot, I, there were unfortunately times where I had to sit down more so in high school because I came more into that, um, sit down with teachers and be like, this is what I need for me to be successful. And a lot of times they were understanding. And unfortunately, like there was one or two that like weren't, but like your loss, not mine. Like I still was successful. So I had to do a lot of advocating for myself. And I think too, I become very passionate, like, and that's part of why I am a special ed teacher is because I see a lot of my kids in myself and like being a, like three and four years old these students don't necessarily have the skills to advocate for themselves. So I have to do it for them. Same thing with like, and it goes hand in hand with their parents. It goes back to them not necessarily knowing what is available to them and not knowing the special education system. If they don't know it, no one's going to tell, like, I have, it, it, like, I have to help them. Like I have to advocate for them because they need to get what they need to be successful. And like, I'm not someone that can just kind of like, sit around and like let things like oh it's okay if it, like if I know something like needs to be done and it's like morally right I'm not going to go to bed like I can't fall asleep unless I know it's done kind of thing well and I, yeah I, I my advocacy style comes from a very similar um situation I think you know you experience it and so you can really empathize right. um and in my life story I have had similar experiences that have given me that kind of empathy but something that I think, you know, there's kind of this undertone there of that's not comfortable, you know, and so sometimes we have to um, have a little bit of conflict, we have to have a little bit of discomfort, it's not comfortable to walk up to somebody and say this is what I need or this is what mm -hmm. my child needs. Um, and so, you know, I think, I wonder what advice you have for parents about kind of overcoming that discomfort, which I think you would agree is necessary in order to advocate. I, again, I think it goes back to the communication, like building a solid relationship with your child's teacher from day one, because nine times out of 10, they're going to be helpful. Like they, they want to help you. That's their job to help you and your child. But um, just having some of those conversations can be harder to have if you don't already have that relationship. So I'm not saying you need to like barge in the door and ask for this, that, whatever, but, you know, you can still ask questions that will lead up to it. So, you know, kind of opening those doors if you're not fully comfortable doing it right away, or just, you don't necessarily even have to ask that teacher directly for what they need. Like you can ask the teacher for resources of where they can find it outside. And nine times out of 10, they'll be happy to give it to you. Um, we're, and I, I, I get it can be intimidating because like they might see us at, as this like, well of knowledge because we have all this information but we have this information for you <laughs> so like um again i think it comes back to that relationship in knowing like having that trust in between us because if you don't have that trust to ask me then you might not trust what i have to say kind of thing so it's just that like mutual respect and communication i think it's so important for people to hear it because that's what i say on almost every single episode, no matter where we come to, we talk about relationships, we talk about trust, we talk about communication. Mm -hmm. And it's so good to hear it from the school perspective that that's what you want. You aren't out to get us. Um, no. The school people want to help. And there, I get it. Like some, like, even to me, some admin, like you guys are intimidating. <laughs> you scare me. <laughs> like I get it because like, they're like in this power position or whatever, but like, at the end of the day, we're like, we're all human. Like we all, you, it's basic social. It's the same skills we teach our, my students. It's the same thing of teaching like mutual respect and communication. So like, just how, like we said at the table, at like the IP table, if you guys disagree on something, as long as you have that relationship and that trust, you can work through it. Um, it's just where I get where, especially when, and I have this issue too, because I am, younger than most of my students' parents. And like, I don't have children of my own. Like there, there sometimes there is a mistrust there because they're like, well, you don't have kids. You don't know what you're talking about kind of thing. 
And like, I don't take offense to it because I would probably say the same thing. Like, yeah, you're literally dropping off this child with a complete stranger. You have no idea who I am. You have no idea my credentials, but that's why from day one, like I invite the student and the parent to come in, to come talk to me, come see the classroom before school starts, ask me any questions you want to ask. Like, I'll, it don't like, it doesn't matter. Like I'll talk to you on the phone with COVID. It was kind of harder. And I would just like, I would have hour, two hour long conversations before I'd even met your child about like our program, but just to make them feel more comfortable because usually with preschool, it's the first time they're dropping their kid off at school if they haven't already been to daycare. And it's more harder, it's more hard on the parent than it is the kid. And that's why I always say, I tell every parent prior to drop off, we are ripping off the band-aid. I know you're going to cry. Your child might cry too. I swear to you, we will love them. I will send you a picture or a video every hour on the first day of school so you know they are okay. And that's what I have to do with some parents because like it's their reassure, like they're so scared. But like after that first day, and like they're like, oh, she actually did send the picture. Okay, she's safe. And then like they're fine the rest of the year. Yeah, like, that's, that's a really great thing for you to do also. Lucy, you are amazing. We need more teachers like you. There are lots of teachers like you out there. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and your passion with us. Tell everybody where they can find you because you've got some really great resources out there yourself. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> um, so I like the main thing that I upkeep is my my Instagram. So it's at the alternative way to pre-K is my Instagram. Um, and then I also have a website, thealternativewaytoprepay.com. Um, and that's like my blog. So I do have a lot of um, resources, not just for teachers, like for parents too. Um, a lot of those things can be applied for parents as well. Um, and then I also sell some teacher resources. Um, so if you're a teacher and listening, I have a teachers pay teachers. Again, it's teacherspayteachers.com slash the alternative way to pre-K. Yay. Thank you so much. This has been really helpful. Yes, of course. Anytime. <laughs>